Hear now the word of God, Revelation 3, verses 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we confess that we, it is the eternal abiding truth. All around us, the grass, the flowers, the trees, all creation fades and withers. But the word of God, your revelation, will stand forever. And so we pray that you would open our eyes, that we might see the wonders of who you are and what you have done for your church in Jesus Christ. We ask in his name. Amen. So this morning, we continue going through the book of Revelation. And for the past several weeks, we've been covering the seven letters within the book of Revelation. So the book starts with an introduction, and then we see these seven letters to the seven churches, or in this case, a letter to the angel of the church in Sardis. And because we've been going through this for a couple weeks now, we're about nine weeks into our book of Revelation, our study, I thought it would be a good time for us to back up a bit and remember kind of where we are and what's going on in this book. Or if you think about it in another way, I thought if you're new here, or if, especially if you're new to the Christian faith, if you were to show up and hear these letters, you might be thinking, this stuff is crazy. And I wouldn't blame you. Because the, the wording and the, the symbolism of the book of Revelation is so far outside of how we think of language and letters and so far outside our modern experience that it's difficult sometimes to have any understanding and idea of what these things mean. So just look at our short passage today. It's a short passage, and in it we see a letter written to an angel. Why would God write a letter to an angel? And what is the business about seven spirits and seven stars and how he addresses in that letter, he addresses people who are alive, but he knows they're dead, and then he calls them to wake up. And if you're dead, you just wake up. You just, like, you're just going to wake up because you're dead. And then that's not even to mention the business about him coming like a thief in the night. And then you've got soiled garments and white clothes and the book of life and all of these things, none of which you and I talk about Monday through Saturday. And so this is strange language. And it's OK for us to stop 
and to say for a minute, this feels strange, it feels awkward, and sometimes we don't know what to do with it. And a large part of why these things are so difficult is because of the differences in language here. And when I say that, I don't just mean that this was a letter written in Greek 2,000 years ago. So it's a different language in a different culture. That's part of it. But what I, what I mean is, is that the language of the book of Revelation is used differently than you and I tend to use language. And there are certain ways that this book employs, especially meaning and symbolism, that are so different from the typical way we use language in our day-to-day -day lives that it's confusing. And sometimes it's startling. And I think it's okay for us to recognize that that sometimes makes it sound a little crazy. And so this morning, we're going to take some time up front to talk about the language here before we get into the content of the letter. And so perhaps the best place to start is looking at the title of the book. This book is called The Book of Revelation. And that comes from the very first line in the book. Chapter 1, verse 1 starts by telling us that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we all, all of us who speak English in this room, have some intuitive knowledge about what this word means, right? What does revelation mean? Well, it's, it's something that's revealed, right? It's something, an insight that is often disclosed in a surprising way. And when we use that word in English, sometimes we think of it, like sometimes it has this, this hint of supernatural dimension meaning to it, right? Like I got a revelation last night. Um, but another synonym that helps us understand the total picture of this word is when you recognize that another translation for this word, revelation, is apocalypse. And when I say this is the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, it probably has a different meaning for you, right? In English, that word, apocalypse, comes from the Greek word here, apocalypsis, and we have taken it to mean it's kind of changed over time. It's morphed a little over time. And so in our language, that's often associated with end-time catastrophic events. But the word just means uncovering or revealing. But I think it's helpful for us, and you'll hear me use the word apocalyptic often through this sermon, because apocalypse gives us that sense that this is otherworldly. There is something going on here that is not, not the same way we experience our earthly world. And so the book of Revelation, the book of the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, is a book about uncovering or revealing new and previously unseen truths from an otherworldly perspective. And so as I reflected on this, I think the most helpful definition for me of apocalyptic language, of the language of the book of Revelation, is that this book uses earthly language to reveal heavenly realities. So let me say that again. In this book, we find earthly language talking about heavenly realities. And it's there at that intersection of heaven and earth that makes things so hard for us to understand. Because what, what God is doing is he's saying, I'm taking these eternal truths, these truths that are so far outside of your understanding, of your experience on earth, and I'm going to try and fit them into your words. And that doesn't always work. Take, for example, the language of the seven spirits of God in verse 1. 
This letter to Sardis contains the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Well, we've seen that phrase, seven spirits of God, before. It happened in chapter 1, verse 4. Happens a few other places throughout the book. And we believe that this is a description for the Holy Spirit. It's pretty clear in other places that Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit. And as with much apocalyptic language, there's something about this definition, about calling the Holy Spirit the seven spirits of God, that can make sense when you press in a little further. And so if you know that the number seven in the Bible is often used symbolically to represent completeness and perfection, then you can know, oh yeah, that makes sense, that the seven spirits of God is the Holy Spirit because he's the perfect spirit. He's completely whole in himself. And at the same time, this language is still difficult for us because you and I aren't used to talking about a thing that we conceptualize as one and we talk about in the plural. And so if I were to tell you that the many ways in which I think my wife is perfect for me, that God created the perfect wife for me, I would not start off by saying, I can't tell you how much I love my seven wives. That would be strange and unusual because we're not used to speaking in this way, but also because that's an earthly experience. My love for my wife and even Corey's perfection, she would be the first to tell you it's not fully perfect. And so it's, it's weird for us to think in these terms. And when these difficulties, difficulties come up, these tensions of heavenly realities and earthly languages, we naturally, what we want to do is we want to take the descriptions that we read, and fit them into our understanding. We want to take these concepts and the ideas and sift them through the grid of what we already know and we already understand, and we want to try and make it work. And while that can be helpful and good, sometimes we run across language or a description or a symbolism that just won't fit. It simply won't sift through our preconceived grid of understanding. And when that happens, at least when we're reading the revealed word of God, what we have to do is we actually have to flip that order around. We actually have to go to the word of God and say, this is God's word, and there are things in it that are true and eternal, and I may have to change what I think and how I even understand what he's telling me based on what he has said. Or in another way, sometimes when we read about heavenly realities in the book of Revelation, we begin by acknowledging its own truth on its own terms and work to fit that truth into our language and our understanding. And so, in the example of the seven spirits of God, we learn that the Holy Spirit is more than us. He's perfect. He is complete. We might not be able to describe it fully, but we know that the Holy Spirit is as these words describe him. And similarly, when we come to the rest of the book, the whole book of Revelation, we come knowing that this language is going to be difficult, and sometimes it's going to feel crazy and weird. It's not what we're used to. But there's also another difference that I think it's important for us to take into account, and that is when we consider that this letter is not speaking just of earthly things, but it's speaking of heavenly things, we see that oftentimes the application of this letter is more universal than we're used to. 
That is, while this letter was written to a specific people, a specific church, at a specific time, its message is intentionally universal. It's intentionally broad. And it might be helpful to compare these seven letters. We're, right, we're talking about the letter to the church in Sardis, but there's seven of them. It might be helpful to compare those letters to the ones written by the Apostle Paul. And we won't spend a long time here, but, but both of those are written to specific churches, churches that existed in real time and had people like us in among their community. But the letter to the seven churches here in the book of Revelation, I think because of the apocalyptic nature of this letter, because this is the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, the letters here will more often speak directly to the universal church. The heavenly realities it portrays are more applicable in some ways immediately to you and me. Now, I don't want to make too stark of a difference between the two, between Paul's letters, between these letters, but I am saying that there's a way in which these seven letters speak directly to the universal church. They speak to us here this morning at Christ Church Bellingham. We see this immediately when we recognize that there are seven letters in the book of Revelation, right? We've already talked about how seven is the number of perfection and completion. So these churches, though they're real in history, they also represent all the churches of Jesus Christ. Or notice in our passage today, and we'll talk about this a little bit more later, that Jesus doesn't give any details of specific sins to the church in Sardis, and partly because this is a broad message to the universal church. The church, the message to the church in Sardis is the same to the message of the church in the United States, even potentially to us this morning. And so recognizing these two things, that the language is sometimes unfamiliar and that the heavenly realities also speak to us directly, we can turn our attention now to the content of this letter and see what heavenly truth does the Lord have for us this morning? And as we do, we find in this passage that it's all about our name. In these six short verses, Jesus mentions the word name four times. And in the language, the symbolic universal language of Revelation, he's not just talking about what we're called. He's not just talking about the label like that I am Jonathan, that's a label attached to me. When Jesus talks about our names, he is talking about our very identity of who we are. And so we find here in the letter to Sardis a heavenly perspective of our very personhood. What is our name? What, who are we at our very core? And asking those questions, I want to point out just two truths from this letter regarding our name. And first, is that we see that Jesus knows our true name. Jesus knows our true name. And second, we see that Jesus provides us with a new name. So Jesus knows our true name, and he provides us with a new name. So let's, well, in, in doing those two things, we see that Jesus reshapes how we think about ourselves, our world, in our very identity. And so let's first look at the first of these, that Jesus knows our true name. And the letter begins in verse 1 by reminding us of Jesus' authority and how his knowledge is grounded in his authority. These are the words of Jesus, 
The one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And so not only does Jesus have the Holy Spirit, he has the seven stars. And earlier in this book, back in chapter 1, he's told us that the seven stars, Jesus specifically says, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And without having time to go into all the symbolism here, the main thrust is that Jesus is Lord of the church. He has complete authority over all his church. And so all that follows is grounded in Jesus' authority and lordship over all things, but especially his lordship over the church. So what does Jesus have to say to his church? Well, at the risk of being redundant, most of this letter is telling us that Jesus knows our true name, even in ways that we don't know ourselves. So we see this in the way that he addresses two different groups in the church in Sardis. The first group we see in verse 1, where Jesus says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Later in verse 4, he speaks to another group, a contrast to this first group. But it's in that contrasting of these two groups where we see the depth of Jesus' knowledge. And the contrast, that contrast between these two groups has to do with their names. Now maybe you were paying really close attention. If you are, please find me after the service because I'll give you bonus points uh, after class. But uh, maybe you heard me say Jesus used the, the word name four times and you went and counted and you only saw three of them. Well, that's because in verse one, if you look again at verse one, to this first group, Jesus says, they have a reputation of being alive. Well, the word there for reputation, that's the word name. What Jesus is saying is he says, I know your works. You have the name of being alive, but you are dead. And again, in the language of Revelation, a name is more than a label. When Jesus uses the word name, he's talking about our identity. Yes, it involves a reputation, but it's so much more than that. Yes, it's tied to our works. He knows what we do. He knows what comes out of our intentions and our desires, but it's also tied to our very identity, who we are. For this group, Jesus sees past what they do. He sees past all their reputation, who they want to be, who they portray themselves to be out in the world, and he knows what this group actually is. And in this case, it's a jarring message. He knows that you are dead, he tells them. Imagine if you and I were there when the church received this letter. I think it's helpful to step back and think that you know, this, is, this is probably a thriving community. This is one of the churches in the first century that received one of the seven letters from Jesus. You know, it was most likely a community that was known for being Christian, for known for being Jesus followers. And yet, Jesus knows its true identity because he pierces through the clutter and the fog of self-perception to the core of their very identity. Because he is the one who made all things. 
He is the one in whom all things hold together. He is the one who knows all things. And he sees not with earthly eyes, but he has a heavenly vision and he knows who we are. And that heavenly vision allows him to see the things that we just simply miss. And because he sees things that we miss, I think it's a reason for us to stop and consider our own context for a while. Notice, again, Jesus, as I said before, he doesn't give any specific details about what their sins are. He doesn't tell them like he tells the church in Pergamum about their sexual immorality. He doesn't tell them about their false teaching like he does for the church in Thyatira. Or like their lukewarm faith like he talks about in his letter to the church in Laodicea. Instead, he simply says that there are people in the church who think they're alive, but are actually spiritually dead. And I think part of the reason Jesus leaves out any detail of specific sin is so that every church who would read this letter, including our church, would ask, is this about me? Remember, these letters are universal in a way. So this message is applicable to any church that is tempted to stray from the Lord. And perhaps the message to the church in Sardis might be a message for some, even in our community today, to hear. Now, I'm in no way uh, trying to say that I think our church is strained. I am tremendously honored to be at a church among so many faithful believers who are following the Lord with their entire lives. But when we stop and realize that Jesus knows us to our very core, he knows the deepest, darkest recesses of our souls, he knows every intention of our heart, I think it's right for us to do some soul searching. Because surely there are some people in Sardis who received this letter and immediately knew Jesus was talking about them. Maybe they had some unconfessed, unrepentant sin in their life that they were trying to hide. And the Lord could use this letter to bring them out of the darkness and into his light. And similarly, the Holy Spirit, he could possibly use this church today among our church to bring someone out of the darkness and into his light. Because Jesus knows our true name. Even in ways that we don't, we can't fool him. The church in Sardis didn't think they were a dead church. And we might not think that we are dead, but we cannot fool the Lord. We might have a reputation of being alive, but he knows his creation and he knows his church. And if that were all that he were to write, if that were all that we were given in this letter, it would be devastating news. If all that I told you was I know the deepest, darkest sin in your heart, I know the intentions of what you think and what you want and the way that you prioritize yourself over others, and that was it, it would be a scary knowledge. But in the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ, not only does he know our true name in ways that we don't even know, but he is the one who provides us a new name. Jesus Christ provides us a new identity in him. And that's our second point for today. Jesus provides us with a new name. 
And as I mentioned, this letter is addressed to two different groups. There are those who are dead. And then in verse 4, we see the second group. And this group, it's, the language is funny here, right? There, you have some who are or who have a name. There are some who have a name. But the contrast is, is that there are some who are dead and there are some who are alive. Some have a name who is death and some have a name that is life. And Jesus tells both of these groups that he is the one who calls them by a new name. He is the one who calls them into a new identity. So first, look at the message to those who are dead. Starting, uh, I believe it's verse 2, when Jesus calls us to wake up. He then gives no fewer than four commands. Strengthen what remains in verse 2. Then in verse 3, he says, remember what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. Otherwise, he says, I will come like a thief against you. Now, you might hear these commands and think, well, how is that being called by a new name? He's just telling you stuff to do. Well, when you look closer at each of these commands, each of them is rooted in the work that he's already done for you. That is, each of these commands is a response to the work of Jesus Christ. Notice his first command is to wake up, to look around, to open your eyes, to see what he's done. Jesus is at work in their midst, and they simply need to wake up from their slumber and experience it. Now, I don't know about you, but I rarely consider waking up a thing that I do. It's not an act that I take. Now, sometimes getting out of bed is certainly an act that requires intention and work. But just the sense of waking up is not me trying to be better. And even more poignantly, Jesus goes on to make it more clear in his second command. After you wake up, you strengthen what remains. This is a call to preserve something that is already in place. Again, Jesus is the one doing the work. He's already at work. And it becomes clearer still in the next verse. Verse 3, where Jesus commands to remember what you have received and heard. So it's something that remains. It's something that's already going on. It's something that you've received and you've heard. Keep these things and repent. And time and again, in this letter and in the New Testament, the message to the church is to attend to, to wake up and recognize and remember not what they're doing, but what Jesus has done for them. Specifically, They are to remember and to keep and see Jesus Christ. He is the man who came and the one who healed the sick, who cared for the poor, who never turned away the outcast in the sinner, the one who took all of our shame, who took all of our sin, all of our unworthiness, and he took it to the cross in agony so that he would rise in glory. He is the king of creation, the one who has the seven spirits and the seven stars, and he is the one who is called out to the church and his command to a dying church, the very message to a dying soul, is to recognize what he's done for you, what he's already gone before you to accomplish. And in this way, he, he strikes us with a jarring message. It's foreign to the way that you think. Because if I were to bring a message like this to you, like think of outside of a letter written to a church, but if I were to come and tell you, I know that you have a reputation of being good, but I know your real works, and I know who you are, 
And if I were to say that, actually, I found your works lacking, they were wanting, how would you respond? As I thought about that question myself, I'm convinced that I would respond by first looking inward, and then my immediate reaction is to try harder and to be better. I would try to you know, double down on my efforts and do the right kinds of works, to do the right kinds of things. But to be clear, Jesus, in this letter, the answer to our death does not come from within ourselves. A dead thing can't simply try harder. When something has died, it has to be raised to life again. We wake up and remember that the Lord has done that for us. We remember all that we've heard, that Jesus Christ is king, that he knows our true name. He knows the depth of our soul and that he took all of our burden, all of our debt and our failures and our sorrow and our shame and our anguish and our pain, and he bore them to the cross that we might have peace with him. That is a message to the dying church. That is a message to the dying soul. And that is a message that is for you and for me as well. And when we receive this message, at least two things happen. First, as Jesus says in verse 3, in his last command, we repent. We ask God to forgive all the things that we've done in our death. All the ways that we've tried to make everybody else think we're alive when we're really dead. And we do this every week in our service. It's a part of our Christian experience is to confess that we need the grace of our Lord. But maybe the Lord is calling you to do it again even now. Maybe there is something that you've been keeping in the dark and you know that you need to confess. Repent. Take it to the Lord. He is merciful and kind. Ask for his mercy because he is clear about what happens when we don't. The rest of that verse, the rest of verse 3, describes how he comes like a thief and he comes against you. Now, he's not talking about a final coming here, right? This isn't about when Jesus will return. What he's doing is he's reminding us that he is the judge of all the world. In fact, the Bible tells us consistently that the Father has given Jesus Christ all judgment. And we never know, you and I never know when and how that judgment will come. It might take the, turn, the, the form of an earthly trial that is a consequence for a bad decision that we have made or for mistreatment of others. Or it might not come on earth, and it might come when we meet him face to face, but our judgment will come, and we will stand before the judge, Jesus Christ, and we will not be able to endure it on our own. And so the good news is we repent, and we turn to Jesus. And what we find is the best news that you and I could never have imagined we find that he is the one who provides us with a new name. It happened here in the church in Sardis. There are some who have a name. They are the ones who have the identity of Jesus Christ. He has brought them into his kingdom. And it happens here at Christ Church Bellingham. And it will happen throughout the rest of history until Jesus comes. And that is the message of this letter. Verse 4 says that the names that they do have have not spoiled their garments, and they are worthy. And when we read that, our natural inclination is to think, well, oh yeah, they probably, they probably did the right works. You know, they were the ones that, they didn't, they didn't do the wrong things, they did the right things. 
But the rest of this letter and the rest of the Bible tells us that that's not how this works. We read earlier today in Isaiah 64 that we have all become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous deeds, the best things that I have ever done, the best things that you have ever done, are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and all our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. The group that have a name in Sardis have a name because Jesus Christ gave it to them. And the rest of this letter shows us how it's the one. They are the ones who are found in Christ. They are clothed in his righteousness, in his white garments, and they walk with them not because they are worthy in themselves, but because he is worthy. And now this doesn't mean that we don't try. This doesn't mean that we just give up and let go and let God. Growing in grace still requires work. We've read it here. We strengthen what remains. We remember what the Lord has done, what he's called us to do, and we keep it. All of these actions require what you might call sanctified effort. But we only do these things because Jesus Christ has provided us a new name. And that name is Beloved. That name is forgiven. That name is worthy, clothed in white, professed before God and all the angels, and that name will never be blotted out in the book of life. That is his promise to his people. That is his promise to you this morning. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the life and the name and the identity that he calls us to. And I pray that we would all listen to his call and rejoice in his mercy. That we would wake up and see what he offers us. Remember all that he's done for us. That we would repent of our sin and receive the new name that he provides. He has done all the work. He offers you his rest and his security in him you find a new identity. Your new identity is that of loved saint in Jesus Christ. I pray that you would rest in that good news this morning. Would you pray with me? Lord, we confess and praise you that you are the name above all names, the only name that is worthy. And we give you praise that though in and of ourselves we would have a name that is death, but you have given us the name of life in Jesus Christ. And so we repent of the ways that we would turn from you and we rest wholly on your grace, praying that you would give us the strength to remember what we have received and what we have heard that we would keep it, and that in doing so, that we would show and demonstrate the love that you have given us in going before us, and that you would even use that to call others to your glorious grace, into your kingdom, and into the love that you have for us in Jesus. God, would we rest in the name and the good news that we have been given in him. Amen.